And would you please give a warm welcome to our campus chaplain, Paul Brandis. So I want to start this morning by telling you all something that I think I'm pretty sure I know to be true about each one of you. Something that I am almost positive is true about every single person in this room. And I do hear that. Like, I hear it when I say it, just like you hear it when I say it, because even though I've been serving this campus as the chaplain, as the campus pastor for three years, I don't actually know all of you yet. Either I haven't had the privilege of uh, meeting you and getting to know you. Many of you I have. Many, many, many of you I have. But some I haven't, and some that's because I just haven't had the chance yet. You've been a student for multiple semesters, and as Stephanie reminded us, we've got some new folks in the room today. Some of you have never ever been to a Sterling College Chapel, and so I haven't had a chance to make your acquaintance yet. And yet, I want to start by telling you something that I think I know to be true about each and every single one of you. Here it is. You want to live the good life. You want to live the good life. And, and it's probably already obvious why I think, think this is true of you. Right, I'm not too much terribly older than all of you, but I am a bit older and I've been around the block a couple of times and I've had the chance in living where I've lived and doing what I've done to meet a lot of different people, uh, to make their acquaintance. And really, like nobody I've ever met in my entire life didn't want to live the good life. It, right? Like, and maybe that's true for you. Maybe not only is this true of you this morning, but this is true, I would guess, of every single person that you've ever met. So really, it kind of comes down more to something like this, doesn't it? Everyone wants to live the good life. Not just you, not just me, not just every person I've met, not just every person you've met, but everyone wants to live the good life. This is a core human longing, I'm convinced, we get one life and every single one of us want it to be good, right? We get one life and every single one of us wants it to be good. But this is the punchline. Everyone wants to live a good life, but not everyone does. Everyone wants to live the good life, but the punchline, and again, this is one of those self-obvious evident truths that we lay at the bottom and then we stack some stuff on top of it to see where we're going. But we all sort of have to establish this first, right? I really think, and I hope you're with me, that everyone wants to get, live the good life, that everyone you've ever met, everyone I've ever met, also wants to live the good life, that indeed it's a core human longing to live a good life with the one life we get, and yet not everybody does that. And I don't even think that we have to judge people's lives to prove this. Haven't you met a person or two or 10 or 100 that are readily willing to tell you that their life is bad? That's basically what Facebook is, isn't it? <laughs> right? Is it not? I, mean, do you, I meet people all the time. And maybe this is just my job as a pastor, but I meet people all the time who are ready and willing to say, hey, my life kind of sucks. It's bad. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. Maybe they wouldn't flip it this way and say, I'm not living a good life. But like you have met people, I know you have, you've got them in your life who are readily willing to admit that they're not living the good life. They're living a bad life or their life is bad. But every, it's like, it's interesting to me, right? Everyone wants to, and yet not everybody's doing it. Which leads to this, again, I'm not breaking new ground here necessarily, but it leads to this super obvious and incredibly important question. If you want to do this, if I want to do this, if we all want to do this, live the good life, and yet not everybody does, how do we do it? How do we live the good life? 
How do we live the good life? And again, I think this is maybe one of the most important questions that you can ever ask yourself. And my hope is that even though this maybe isn't a typical question for a college student, I really think it should be. I probably didn't start wrestling with this type of meta, sort of large question when I was your age, and I'm worse for it. You'd be better the earlier you would ask yourselves and wrestle with these types of big life type of questions. How do we live the good life? And I think this question is so important that we're dedicating the next few Wednesday chapels to it. And you may not agree with all that I and the other preachers say during the course of this teaching series, but my hope, my prayer, is that these next five Wednesdays will at least cause you to pause, to stop, and to actually consider. Don't tune me out. If you think this is important, like pull your AirPods out and engage with this question. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with the other people that I've invited to speak in this series, but like we, this is an important question, right? So how are you going to answer with it? Let's engage together over the next few weeks. How do we live the good life? And here's the first thing I'll say about this question. Nobody can answer it for you except for you. Nobody else can answer that. Like, you all, some of you have parents that tried to answer this question for you. Some of you have parents that are still trying to answer this question for you. Can I get an amen in the room? Right? Like you, some of you have parents that are saying, I, I want to decide what your good life is going to be. Listen, like, and I don't know, we got maybe like one perspective parent in the room. I don't know. It's like, it doesn't work that way. We all, this is, it's your life. Like the first thing I'll say about this is that you got to answer this question. Here's the second thing I'll say about this. You're already answering this question. Every single moment of every single day is part of your answer to this question. So it's up to you and you're already doing it. Do you see why this is so important? It's in some ways, I'm like freaking, like in some ways it's like the test has already begun and you're already giving answers to it, right? Like this is your, it's up to you and you're already answering it. So this matters. This is important. Here's what I'll say next about this, okay? This is up to you. You're already answering it. And here's, okay, this is, um, those two are pretty obvious, right? I think to really get at this and to, to have a good answer to this question of how we live the good life, I think you have to wrestle a little bit about what this is. I know I'm like, this is big. You have to wrestle a bit with what the core purpose of humanity is. I'm like, just let your brains, it's okay, you can explode with me. What is the core chief purpose of men and women, of us, of humanity? What's the, what's, why are we here? What's up with us, right? Like that's the core purpose, okay? Now let me, here's why this is so important. Uh, take a bicycle. A bicycle. Think about a bicycle for just a second, okay? Go with me. There isn't 100% consensus on this, but a lot of people think that the modern bicycle, you didn't, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, invented by a German guy in 1817 named Karl, with a K. Good old-fashioned German name. Karl with a K. A lot of people think he invented the modern bicycle. It probably wasn't that one, okay? But so he invents the modern bicycle, and he shows it to somebody first, right? Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe he had a group of inventors that he worked with. Maybe it's his wife. He, like, rolls the bicycle in, and what is, Karl's proud, This is an incredible invention, right? So what does Carl say? What do you think of my new invention? Isn't it great? Isn't it good? Okay, but hold on. 
First time that the bike has, it's hot off the press, right? It's, it's brand new. The person he's showing it to has no idea what a bike is. They don't know what the ultimate purpose of a bike is. Like what if his purpose in inventing the bike was for a new way to sit still at your desk? Then the person that he showed it to would say, actually, Carl, that's a terrible invention. Like that is not going to do the thing that you set out to have it do. But because the bike's purpose is to get you from point A to point B, that's a pretty dang good invention. We have to know, are you tracking with me? We have to know the ultimate purpose of a thing to determine if it is good or excellent at that thing. So step back out of bicycle world for a moment. Let's leave Carl in the early 1800s Germany and let's go back to this sort of mind-bending question of what is your purpose? What is my purpose? What is the core purpose of humanity? Okay? To really answer the question of what is the good life, you have to at least try to slap at that bigger question of what it is that we're all doing here and what's the point of all of this. Tracking with me? Okay, what is the chief end of man? That's a weird way to say that question. It's not mine. What is the chief end of mankind? I'm pulling that from a place called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You don't have to remember that. Don't worry about it. A catechism is a series of questions and answers that are designed to help followers of Jesus learn the essential truths of our faith. Simple questions, uh, a little bit more complex theological answers about who God is, how the world works. There's 107 questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's like there's a longer one at 100, 107, and they're like, that's short, right? Like, like a mini, a mini catechism or something. But there's 107 questions. Do you know what's batting lead off? Do you know what question number one is? These really smart people that love Jesus really well, they sit down to help other followers of Jesus determine the important truths of how you do that. And question number one is what is the chief end of man? What is the core purpose of humanity? Why do we exist? Here's what they came up with. It's really good. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And listen, I, there's like a lot of different ways to answer this question of what is the core purpose of humanity, right? Like that's a, it's not, there's not consensus on that question. It's hotly debated. There's a couple, a few hundred of us in this room right now. There's not just one opinion, right? You, but like, I was just talking with the student yesterday and I asked her this question because it came up in the course of our conversation. Like, what do you think our purpose is on this earth? She had a great answer. I think our purpose is to love as best we can and be, to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Okay, that's in range of this, but it's a little different. But I it's like she is a college student just like you, enrolled here, wonderful, who's wrestling with this question. Are you wrestling with it? Do you have an opinion? I'll lay my cards out. And, and, and I think I'll speak as well for the rest of the people that will be preaching in this series. This is what I think the chief end of man is. That's why I chose to use this example of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think that the student's answer yesterday was phenomenal. I enjoyed our conversation. But I think it's a little different. I think the chief end of man, our core purpose as humanity, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. To bring God glory by enjoying him forever. Okay, so that's what I think humanity's core purpose is, which means that as I answer the question for me, and as I try to say, give you a vision of the good life here on this stage over the next five weeks, this is what I'm working out of. And I know we're not all going to agree on that. 
We're going to diverge on this. But this is what I'm working out of. The core purpose of humanity. For men, for women to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Each one of you in your own lives will have to reckon with what you believe your ultimate purpose is. And then, this is the next step, right? What's the ultimate purpose? What path am I going to take to get there? What path? There's not just one path to this good life. What path am I going to take to my ultimate purpose? What path am I going to take to my purpose? And again, I'm not trying to impose my views, my beliefs on you in the midst of this, but I do get the privilege and the responsibility of standing here and saying, here's what I believe and here's what I think the Bible teaches and what the way of Jesus is in the midst of these huge questions. So that's where we're going to be for the next five weeks. What is the good life? How do we live the good life? And again, even though you may not agree with me 100%, if you would, I'd like to continue down, maybe we'll call my road, just a little bit, kind of how I'm thinking about these things, how I've wrestled with these things, because I think there's more to uncover in the way that I've thought about this and, and, and developed kind of my answers to these questions. Because so far, it's been pretty high level, right? I think we can all agree that we all want to live a good life. And I think we can all agree that not everybody's doing that. Not everybody is living a good life, even by their own standards, I think we can also have see together that to determine whether something is good or not, we need to know what that thing's ultimate purpose is. And then again, I think that humanity's ultimate purpose is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. But what now? That's still really like in the clouds, right? And glorify God by enjoying him forever. Okay, that's Paul's vision of the good life. What now? I mean, let's say maybe you're a little bit intrigued by that vision of the good life of glorifying God by enjoying him forever. How do you live that out? How does that hit in your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday? How does that impact your practices, your homework, your relationships, your bank account, your major, your choice? How, how do all these things fit together? How do you live out that vision of the good life in your particular, unique, individual context? How do you do that? And if it's okay, for shorthand, I'll call this vision of the good life the God-centered vision, right? Because it's to glorify God. He's at the center of this vision of the good life, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So it's the God-centered vision of the good life. Let's say, maybe you're not, but let's say you're interested in that. You're intrigued by that. How do you live it out? Or how do you begin to live it out? Man, there's so much we could say about that. But here's where we're going to be the next five weeks. To live the God-centered good life, you need to practice habits of excellence. To live the God-centered good life, you need to practice, quote here, because I'm defining something, defining a word. I wanted to hit you with this first. You need to practice, quote, habits of excellence. And what I'm defining with that phrase, habits of excellence, is the word virtue. The word virtue I started with habits of excellence because I, want that, I wanted that in your brain first. Because I'm not sure we use the word virtue much in our modern discourse, and I wanted to drill down into a digestible definition. A virtue is, I think, I'm submitting to you, a habit of excellence. And so connect the dots with me, if you will. I mean, maybe you've heard it said before that a person has lived, have you ever heard this? A person has lived a virtuous life. You heard that? A person has lived a virtuous life. Think about the people that you've heard that said of. 
they lived a virtuous life. It sort of almost is like just a synonym sub-in word for the good life, isn't it? If someone lives a virtuous life, it's almost the other side of the coin of living the good life. Okay? It almost seems like a sub for that. I hear me. I believe that the God-centered good life is synonymous with the virtuous life. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore some habits of excellence. We're going to explore some virtues, some of the virtues, some of the habits of excellence that make up and lead to and catalyze you towards the good life. And with the rest of our time this morning, the virtue, the habit of excellence that I want to start with is, well, what I want to do is encourage you all to be, um, to be prudes. Yeah, you heard me right. I actually want to encourage you all to be prudes. And I know immediately you're like, okay, well, that took a left turn. And I was kind of a little bit tiny with you, but I'm like way out now. Like what? What are you talking about? Right? And I feel that with you. I feel, I do. I feel that with you. Every connotation, I'm like, this is, I'm not, this is genuinely me. Every connotation that I have about the word prude is bad. Can I get an amen in the room for that, right? Like, it's like, it's not good. Like, you just like call someone a prude. It's like, that's the, it's like, you know, those are them's fighting words, right? Like the connotations we have about that word are not good. But here's what I didn't realize until I really dug into this. All, the only understanding I had of the idea of what it means to be a prude is a caricature. You know caricatures, right? When you go to the fair, you go to Six Flags and they, you pay way too much money to have somebody do a cartoonish look that's not really the real thing. That's all I had understood about this concept of what it means to be a prude. So, so please, if you will, just track with me a little bit. And it's even, it gets better when you broaden it out from just like, hey, you're a prude, into what the virtue actually is. The virtue is prudence. Prudence. Everybody say prudence with me. Prudence. Thank you. One more time. Prudence, right? That's even just a little better. Okay, what, what is prudence? It's practical wisdom. Prudence is practical. That's like a, a million times better, isn't it? Like immediately I'm like, wait a second, hold on. If that's actually what prudence is, I at least want to hear more. Prudence is practical wisdom. That's a tight and good and digestible definition. Prudence and is practical. It almost completely redeems the idea of prudence for me and makes this an attractive virtue that I absolutely, like I immediately see how prudence would be connected with living a good life. Because listen, you look out, you see it in the world with me too, right? We, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this quote from somebody else, it's not mine. We are information rich, we are wisdom poor. We are information rich, we are wisdom poor. You can Google whatever you want. Have you seen Google's new commercial? Like a minute long, solid 60 second spot that they developed where people are Googling questions like, what is the good life? What is my purpose? Man, that's, that's a terrible place to go to ask that question. It's, it's awful. Do not Google life's big questions. Don't do that. I'm not trying to shame you if you've done that, but please, that is information, that is not wisdom. Okay, we are information rich, we are wisdom poor, we are wisdom bankrupt in our moment. 
And so if prudence is practical wisdom, I'm like, sign me up. I need it. Everybody else that's driving needs it because you know it's not prudent. Texting while driving. It's not practically wise. People die. Like, are you with me? This is practical wisdom. It gets on the ground and it helps you figure out how to live your life. And so we need it. We need prudence. We need it. We need to strip away our preconceived notions about it. I mean, even just, here's what author Karen Swallow Pryor says about prudence. She writes this. She says, virtue requires judgment and judgment requires prudence. Prudence is wisdom in practice. It is the habit of discerning the true good in every circumstance and the right means of achieving it. In other words, prudence is applied morality. I've got one more slide on this from her. A person possesses the virtue of prudence when the disposition to reason well about what courses of action and emotion will best bring about our own and others' well-being becomes an acquired habit. Wisdom, I'm sorry, prudence is wisdom in practice. I love this quote from Karen Swallow Pryor. It makes the idea, the virtue of prudence, vibrantly compelling and helpful. I read this quote, I'm like, I know what that is. And I desperately want it in my life, and I want it in the lives of my kids, my three boys. I want to raise prudent young men who are practically wise. And also, right, I think that this quote shows in a compelling way that prudence is needed to live the God-centered vision of the good life. That it is one of, if not the queen of, the habits of excellence that are required along that journey of living the God-centered good life, the God-centered vision of the good life. And I think it shows that because when I read this quote, do you know who it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus. And no one lived a more God-centered vision of the good life than Jesus. But when I read back through, look back through this quote with me, and think with me about the way that Jesus, the choices he made, how he answered the test of life, Think back with his life as we match with this definition. Prudence is about discerning the true good in every circumstance, and then it's about knowing how to bring that good to bear. It's about looking at the calculus of a situation and saying, this will be bad, this will be bad, this will be bad, this will be bad, that will be good, and then it's about knowing, here's how I get from here where we all are together, and here's how we go there towards the good. And then what is she, that's Jesus, is it not? And then what does she do more, right? She drives into this space of the well-being, the flourishing, the good life of others. Prudence isn't just about your good life. It's actually about being practically wise and helpful to the others that are involved in your life. Does that not describe Jesus? Who brilliantly, in every circumstance that he ever found himself in, was able to diagnose where the bad was, was able to diagnose where the maybe one spot of good was, and then knew how to get from where he and the other people were to that spot of good. Over and over and over, Jesus lived a practically wise and prudent life. And it was one of his own habits of excellence that led him to living a stunningly beautiful, God-centered vision of the good life. There's so many examples. Here's just one. One story as we close from the life of Jesus. It's found in John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. If you turn there in your Bibles, you'll find a note, a little side note 
about the story not being included in the most original manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible. Now, the majority of scholars do think that this is an account of a real event that happened in the life of Jesus and this woman and the crowd that's present, but they only think that it moved from oral to written history a little bit later than some of the other accounts from Jesus' life. But regardless, you'll find that note in your Bibles, regardless, this story in John 8 is an incredible story. And it's well worth our consideration. Here's how this story begins. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach him, teach them. The teachers and the, of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay, stop. There's more. Let's stop right there. Stop for a moment with me. Let's back up a bit and let's move a little slowly and make sure we're catching the fullness and honestly catching the insanity of what's happening here. So Jesus is teaching in the temple. The temple was the place where the people of God gathered to worship him. They came to offer sacrifices, which was a system that God had in place at that time, to hear teaching from rabbis like Jesus, to give their tithes and offering, and so on. It sounds a little bit like a church, except for the sacrifices part, right? We don't do that, but it's a little different too, right? Because the temple... Uh, was also, Jesus is in the temple courts. And the courts of the temple, actually, they were a little bit more like, have you ever been to an outdoor mall? You know, where like people are milling around and they're, they're shopping, they're engaging, they're catching up with friends, right? There maybe there's, there's outdoor seating for restaurants. Right? That's a little bit like what the temple courts were. So there's all this energy, there's all this hustle and bustle. And think with me about a setting like that, the text is clear. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. So maybe there's a small, medium, maybe it's even a large crowd around him. But I guarantee you not every single person in the temple courts is paying attention to Jesus yet. Because, but think too, right? Like what level of commotion would have to happen to get everybody in a place like that to stop and go, wait a second, what's going on over there? Oh, and this is what happens. Uh, this is what happens, right? Because the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day, in some ways, a lot like pastors, they've got a plan to try to trap Jesus. They, they've caught a woman in adultery, and it's possible that they even orchestrated, right? Like, how else would they have known that she was going to be committing adultery at that moment if they hadn't had an inside tip from the guy that she was doing it with? And do you notice that he's not there? So they break in at the moment, maybe it's a setup, probably is a setup, rip this woman out of bed so that they can drag her to the temple in front of Jesus, and now nobody's doing anything except for watching what's happening. Except for watching what's happening. And they bring this woman to Jesus. They're pushing through the crowd. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine being there? All you're trying to do is show up early, maybe do something else, catch a little bit of Jesus' teaching, and all of a sudden you're getting shoved out of the way by a Pharisee who's dragging this woman who's been roughed up right to the middle of Jesus, right to the middle of where he's at, dropping her at his feet. They come to him and they say gruffly, right? The Old Testament says that we should stone this woman. But what do you say? What do you say? 
And verse 6, again, it lets us in on, on, on the, the secret that these religious leaders are trying to orchestrate this situation to trap Jesus, right? In the Old Testament letter of the law, it said that the people that were caught in the act of adultery, the people, not just the woman, the people, where's the man, right? The people caught in the act of adultery should be executed by stoning. But the thing is, this is a practice that actually wasn't really practiced. This didn't just like happen randomly on a Tuesday afternoon, nobody in the crowd wants this woman to actually be stoned. It's a complete trap for the religious leaders. They know a couple of things. They know that Jesus is already a teacher of love, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. Right? But they also, they're wondering, right? They've heard that he said he has come, he doesn't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. So what do we do when we put him in what seems like we've painted him into a corner? He can't get out. He's, he, grace, love, compassion, is he against the law? Is he going to abide by this law? What's he going to do? And the second, maybe even bigger piece, is that the only person at that time who could give the death penalty was the person who ended up giving the death penalty to Jesus. Did you notice that at the end of the story of Jesus' life? The Jewish leaders actually couldn't kill him. They had to go to the Romans, who was the occupying force that were over the Jews at this time. So the Jewish leaders, they put him on trial. They find him guilty in two seconds. They actually can't kill him. They have to take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So fast forward all the way back to John chapter eight. They're saying, hey, should we kill this woman right now? They're literally holding stones already. And they know that Jesus teaches compassion, love, grace, forgiveness. And they know that Jesus doesn't have the authority or power to actually give this woman the death penalty. It's just the Roman governor. Need a little bit of prudence, huh? Like, how are, you in, how are you in the middle of that going, okay, bad, 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 but where's the good? How do you bring about the well-being and flourishing of the woman, of yourself? How do you do that? How do you do that? Here's how the story ends. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, don't miss this, friends. He said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, this is one of my favorite details in this entire story. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Listen to it. The older ones first. The ones who had lived more life and realized, realized who they were and what they had. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that brilliantly prudent? I mean, it might still sound a bit odd to use this story to illustrate Jesus' prudence, but again, remind ourselves here what prudence actually is. 
practical wisdom? Does this story not incredibly fit the bill of showing how Jesus was a practically wise individual who was able to brilliantly, and even in this situation, quickly discern bad, 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 bad. There's the one good path that will lead to her flourishing, that will lead to my flourishing, because this saved her life, almost certainly. And I think this saved his life too. This trap that was set by the Pharisees, this had murderous intent. These are the guys that end up ultimately finding a way to kill Jesus. They just had to have more than one bite at the apple, but not today. And in fact, not until he allows himself to be captured and taken to death. It was not yet his time. It was not yet his time. But by brilliant prudence, by brilliant practical wisdom, Jesus navigate, navigates the difficulty. I mean, can you imagine being in this situation? Only Jesus. Because no one was more practically wise than Jesus. No one was more practically wise than Jesus. And again, I really think that this habit of excellence in his life is one of the reasons, one of the massive big rock reasons why he was able to live such a beautifully compelling, God-centered vision of the good life. And that's why he's most important in my life. Right? Like my God-centered vision of the good life is all about walking in the way of Jesus. I know right now, if you dropped me into John 8, I would have screwed that up. <laughs> but like by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, I'm trying to take like baby steps in practical wisdom. So that maybe, just maybe, when I'm faced with difficult situations, when there's a lot of bad around me and maybe only one or two or three ways toward the good, I might know how to get there. Here's the other reason I love this story. We didn't focus much on her in this moment, but this story includes this poor woman, right? And think about being her for a moment. Listen, in, in your journey towards the God-centered vision of the good life, you're going to stumble and fall. You're going to have moments where you find yourself down in the dust. You're going to have moments where you find yourself having screwed up and not having been as practically wise as you needed to be. You're going to find yourself having not been prudent, having made some mistakes, having rebelled against God and his ways, and you are going to have tripped, and you are going to have fallen, and you are going to be lying in the dust. You are going to be broken, and you're going to be ashamed. But this story reminds us that what does Jesus do? He bends down. He takes your hand. He picks you up. He speaks a word of love and kindness and forgiveness to you. And then he speaks a powerful charge, does he not? Has no one condemned you, woman? No, no one, she says. Then neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. There's the grace, there's the forgiveness, there's the love. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Go, go now and leave your life of sin. We might paraphrase it. Go, go now and live a practically wise life. Go, go now and be prudent in your choices and in your decisions. Go, go now and chase after the God-centered vision of the good life. And as you chase it down, when you trip next time, I'll be right there to pick you back up. That's another reason I love this story. And so may we, those of us who are here today that want to live the God-centered vision of the good life, right? How do we live the good life? Well, if it's a God-centered vision of one, let Jesus pick you back up 
and let him charge you on the road back down towards practical wisdom, towards prudence, and towards other habits of excellence that will help you achieve it. Let's do that together. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these students, for their attention, uh, for your, the beauty of your word and the stories of Jesus that can animate our hearts and minds and can help us, can remind us of the gospel that no matter how bad we've blown it, your grace in Jesus is more. Father, I know we're navigating a lot of big, heavy questions about the good life and how we achieve it, and we can only do that well by your power and might. And so as we navigate these texts and these habits of excellence, these virtues together over the next few weeks, I pray, Father, that you would be with us, that you would help us. Um, Lord, and again, as Jesus did to the woman, I pray you would pick us up when we stumble and fall. Thank you for the grace and mercy of Jesus and for the example that his life is. In his name we pray, amen.